Revelation chapter 1. So we're going to close out Song of Solomon chapter 5, but I want to go to Revelation chapter 1 first because uh, the part that we're going to close out on, on Song of Solomon chapter 5 is a description of Jesus Christ. And there's one thing that I was thinking about um, this week and last night as I was trying to prepare my heart for this message. Um, so what we're going to look at in Song of Solomon chapter 5, it is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to describe Solomon, but we know that these descriptions of Solomon are also talking about Jesus Christ because that's our relationship with him. That's been the whole book. And here's the reality behind it. I, this happens to me all the time, and I, and I think it happens to you guys too. But the reason why we don't fear God and the reason why we don't walk with God the way we should, the reason why we don't obey God the way we should is because we don't see him properly in our life. And if we would just see God properly in our life, our entire lives would be completely different. And what's hard about this whole concept is that you wake up in the morning, we've, we got, you got the world in your face every day, you got family, you got issues, you got your friends, you got your responsibilities, you got your work you need to do, you've got all these things. And we get so entrenched in all this stuff that we don't take time to make sure that we see God properly in our lives every day. We just don't. And, you know, some of that is our fault. There's no doubt about it. We've got to take responsibility for it. Some of that is definitely our fault. Um, but some of the fault lies in the fact that that's what the world does. I mean, the world belongs to the devil. This is his place, and he is doing things in your life to purposefully distract you and to keep you away from God and keep you away from thinking about the things of God. So there's part of me that, like, in my life, when I struggle with this kind of stuff, I get mad at me a lot. I do. I, I feel like I'm my own worst enemy. I feel like I'm my worst critic. And I, I put myself down a lot when it comes to walking with God because I know that it really does lie on my shoulders. But at the same time, it's not all my fault. There's also the world that's out there trying to distract me, and I'm letting it. But I should be equally mad at the world and mad at the devil for wanting to do these things. But I need to see it. I need to see this. I mean, like, even for example, so Wednesday night, you know, there's a few of us that we were hanging out afterward, and we were just talking about stuff, and I ended up uh, freaking out Jen uh, because I started talking to her about things that are, like, pretty crazy. I mean, conspiracy theory-type stuff about the world, um, about angels and angels procreating with, with women and creating half-breed monsters and, you know, men of renown, as the Bible talks about in Genesis 6, and talking about some of those things. But as we were talking about it, you know what it really did? Like, the reason why it freaked her out is because the veil was taken back on her eyes and she began to see things biblically and started to see the world and started to see how the devil manipulates things in the world to keep people distracted and away from God. Because all that in mind, there is coming a day, the Bible talks about, that we are going to see Jesus Christ face to face. When that day comes, the veil that you and I have or that we tend to have or that we tend to put in front of our faces will be taken away. And we will see everything very, very clearly. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's going to be a day where you are going to stand there and go, oh my word, I should have seen this and I didn't. And if I would have seen it like this, my life would have been much better. I would have made different decisions. I would have talked to people differently. I would have read my Bible more. I would have spent more time with God 
And now that I see it the way that I see it, I'm ashamed and I have regret. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But the thing is, is that it doesn't have to happen that way. It doesn't have to. Because in the Bible, not only has God given you everything you need, but he has also given you the things that you're going to see on that day. He's described it in detail. In detail. So that way the veil can be taken away now, and you can start making proper decisions now. So this lesson today, I feel, is like critical, super important for you to understand that the reason why, I mean, our struggles are our struggles, and our sins are our sins, and there are things that we're going to... But the reason why we struggle, the reason why we don't do things according to the will of God is because we don't see things properly. It's a lot like, um, you know, okay, like for example, many of you have corrective lenses, right? So I take mine off and like right now, the back of the room is like super blurry. Now I can still see you. Hi, hi wife. I can still see you. I can still make out your faces. I still know who you are, but it's very, very blurry. There are some people that when they take their glasses off, that you can't even tell who the person is standing in front of you. Am I right? Kent, yeah. you're one of them. Yeah. My wife, when she's driving at night, can be kind of dangerous. <laughs> yeah, seriously, look, look out. I mean, there, there's a reason why that these things help us and we're supposed to wear them on a daily basis so you can see clearly. This is exactly what God desires for us because as sinners, we are like this. We see things and it's blurry, and it can cause, give us a headache, and there might be times where we just don't see right and we just want to close our eyes. But when God comes into the picture, he's like, no, 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 I want to give you my word so that way when you put it on, you can actually see things crisp and clear and be like, oh my goodness, now I can see. I mean, I remember, you know, there were times where like I would get a new pair of glasses or something like that, and it would be my prescription just changed or whatever, and I put the new pair on, and you're like, what have I been missing this whole time? It's exactly what it's like on a spiritual level. And this is my greatest fear for you guys because you guys, and I, and I say this a lot, but I want to remind you all the time, but this period of your life lasts for just a short bit. Like it's just, I mean, four years to you guys when you're a freshman is like forever. Four years for those of you that are seniors are like, oh my gosh, I wish I had more time for some of these things, but I'm glad I'm over with it. So, there, but the four years, I mean, how fast did they go? They go super fast, super fast. And by the way, four years is like half of the age of my oldest daughter. And that's weird to me to even think about. In another eight years from now, she's gonna be 16 years old. She's gonna be in this class. I can't even think about that, it's weird. But when I think about stuff like that, you know what it does for me? When I think about the truth, it causes me to be like, oh my gosh, I only have so much time with my daughter. So I better do the best job that I can as a dad to be instilling inside of her the things that she needs, the character qualities that she must have in order to survive. I'm thinking about those things. And so although thinking about that kind of stuff might freak you out, taking away the veil of our ignorance away is so important for you. It is so important for you. And my fear is that taking away the veil for some of you guys only happens like once or twice a year. And it only lasts maybe a couple months. But you need to get into the habit every day of removing that veil, every single day removing that veil. And the key to removing that veil is making sure that you're looking at Jesus Christ properly. You have to see him properly. If you're not willing to see him properly, then don't be surprised that you don't make good decisions. Don't be surprised that you end up wasting your time and wasting your years and wasting your life because you didn't take time to see him properly. He is the key to everything. 
And in order to see God properly, you have to see his word properly. But God reveals this stuff to us so that we don't have to find out on that day and be ashamed. So I want to read this description to you. And I want to to show you this because this is another description of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to go into Song of Solomon chapter 5. Okay, Revelation chapter 1. All right, so John is here. He's uh, launched forward in the Spirit, um, and he is at the uh, the day of Jesus Christ. And so uh, before Jesus Christ tells him to write the things which thou hast seen in verse 19, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, that's all the contents of the book of Revelation. So before he begins to write the details of church history, of the tribulation, of the uh, new heaven, new earth, all that stuff, he ends up seeing Jesus Christ. And keep in mind something. This is something that you might not think about unless you just chew on it a little bit. John was like the closest of all the disciples to Jesus Christ. Out of all the disciples, he was the closest. He was the one at the Last Supper where he was, he was leaning on Jesus' chest. He was the one that when Jesus said, one of you shall betray me, all of them said, you know, is it I, is it I, is it I, is it I, is it I? And John is the only one that said, Lord, who is it? Because he, know that it, he, he knew it wasn't him. So God, who is it? He, is the only, he was the first one to the tomb. He was the first one of the disciples to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was the, the one whom Jesus was hanging on the cross and entrusted the care of his mother to him as if it was his own mother. I mean, this guy was like the closest you could possibly get to Jesus Christ. So here he is, and he uh, is in, like it says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a, a great voice as of a trumpet. And of course, if you hear that, you're going to turn around and you're going to see who that is. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burn in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. And then he tells him to write the things which he's going to tell him. So this description is absolutely stunning. I mean, when you start to put this stuff together, and you start to think about this, the countenance of Jesus Christ, it was as the sun that shineth in its strength. How many of you have a tried, just tried to look at the sun? Okay. <laughs> All right. How'd that work out? I mean, you look up at it and you're like, yeah. I mean, it's almost like immediate. So his countenance was as the sun. So that means like come face to face, like from me to Kent, come face to face with the sun and try to look upon it. And then on top of that, his eyes are as a flame of fire. Talk about intimidating. <laughs> I mean, when someone has that kind of a look, his eyes are as a flame of fire, and his hair is like wool, white like snow. And then his response, 
remember, he was the closest one to Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus. He knew him. But when he saw Jesus glorified, when he saw God in his strength, he looked at him and then he just fell down. I mean, boom. I mean, I just want to picture it. I felt his feet as if he was dead. Well, how does a dead man fall? I mean, <laughs> I mean, he on his face, no ability to even stand at the presence of Jesus Christ. And he loved him and he was intimate with him. He had a good, close relationship with Jesus. Now, do you think that that would have changed John slightly? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Do you think he would have ever forgotten that? No. That's the point. When you are face-to-face with God, Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes everything about you. It changes everything that you see. It changes everything. But yet... Those moments in our life where we are changed, how quickly we just forget them. And how quickly we can tend to just go back and go back like a dog returning to its vomit to those things that keep holding us down from having a fruitful relationship with God. It should never be that way. It should never be that way. God Almighty should be such a powerful force in your life with his eyes like a flame of fire that every day when you look into his face, when you look into the face, into the eyes of Jesus Christ, that his eyes that are as a flame of fire burn away the veil from you and it never comes back again. That's how it should be. And that's how it can be. But we need to be able to see Jesus properly. We've got to. We've got to. There's so many souls at stake. There's so many things that God desires for you to do. And you may not believe that, but you know what? Just forget believing the lies that you believe. God, There is something that God desires for you to do that no one else can do. And I don't care if you don't believe it. I know it's true. So start believing it and start actually living according to it. You guys are built uniquely. Like There's no one that's like you. The way that you are wired, the way that you are built, the way that God has designed you, you have potential and capabilities and things in you to do something magnificent for the Lord. You do. And every day that you believe otherwise, it is a flat-out lie from your flesh, from the world, from the devil, and you should not believe it. Because get into the scriptures. It's exactly what it says. There's things that you need to accomplish, that you must accomplish, or God is not going to get glorified the way that he needs to. And it's not going to be the same for everybody. Like the way that I glorify God is not going to be the way that you are. Find how you work. Find the ways that God has uniquely designed you and glorify God in those things. What are they? Sit down and think about that. I mean, schools, teachers, guidance counselors, they want you to sit down and consider your future and your future career. Am I right? Almost to the point where it gets super annoying. Well, okay, if it's that important that they're trying to get you to do that when you're like in seventh and eighth grade now, I won't be surprised if when Lily gets there, they're trying to get her to do it in fifth grade. Then why don't you do that spiritually? Because your spiritual life is way more important than your career. Have you ever sat down to consider how God has designed you and what he wants you to do with your life? We need to start thinking this way, but we've got to be able to see Jesus Christ properly. We have to. We've got to. We've got to. If you won't, you're going to regret it. All right, let's get into this. Song of Solomon chapter 5. So we've already covered verses 1 through 9, or 1 through 8. If you want to pick up on those verses, just uh, look up the podcast. Uh, You can do that on any iPhone or iPad or any iOS device. Just go to the podcast or and end up searching for solid and you'll find it all right so um we're going to be hitting verses 9 through 16 with the description of jesus christ and how this ends so the bride's description of the bridegroom and so here's the point 
we should always be ready to give a reason of the hope we have in Jesus Christ and why we love Him. Why we love Him. Take a look at verse 9. So, ending it with verse 8, you have the bride who's speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, and she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. And then verse 9 says this, What is thy beloved more than another beloved? So this is like the response of the daughters of Jerusalem. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost charge us, dost so charge us? So that's a good question. She's so in love with this man that she goes to the daughters of Jerusalem and says, if you find him, tell him that I'm sick of love, that I'm looking for him. And so then the women respond, what's the big deal about this guy? I mean, you love him so much. Why? Okay, that should happen in your life. When you are walking closely with God and people know it, that they should look at you and say, what's so important about this Jesus that you follow? I mean, because I see that you care a lot about him, but what's the deal? Like, why is this so important to you? When that question is posed, you should be able to give an answer. Because she does. Because this is the description. This is the description of him and why she loves him so much. Verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon the sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is absolutely amazing. When you take each of these characteristics and you begin to look them up, we won't have time to look at all of them today. I just want to show you a few of them, and then you can look at the other ones later. When you take each of these characteristics and you search them in the scriptures, you find that this is more than just an appearance of a man. There are character qualities in him that are excellent. Now, excellent is a very unique word. I've had my, my dad has explained this over the years, but excellent. What's the first part of excellent? Excel. Excel. Even Andy can get it. Excel. Excel. And it's not just excel as in like be able to be better than anybody else, but excel. It has a, has a connotation with light, of, of radiant light. Excellent. It's excellent. It's radiating with light. It's, it's radiating with beauty, radiating with just the radiance of God's glory. And so here, when she gives his countenance and how he looks and his appearance, she is describing things about him that are amazing, absolutely amazing. So first of all, she says that he is white. He is white. Now, um, now there's people that think that, you know, Jesus was black or that he was, you know, had more of a tan skin or whatever, but actually he was white. Because if you take the Jewish race back and you take it back to its roots, they have a white countenance. Their pigmentation is actually white. If you go back to a pure Jew, I don't know if you ever knew that, but that's just something interesting to find out. So my beloved is white, but more than that, white in the Bible is so important. What do you think white pictures in the Bible? I mean, think about it. Purity and how? Like, think what are different things in the Bible that are white that you just know of off the top of your head? Doves. Doves. Doves are pure. Snow. Go to Isaiah. Look at Isaiah, chapter 1. 
Hold your spot here. A good Isaiah chapter one. Snow is a good one. Manna. Manna was white. Yep, the seed. The seed of the manna was white. Isaiah chapter one, just a few pages over. Take a look at this. Isaiah one. So I'm gonna read verse eighteen. You got it. Go ahead, Haley. So here you've got the comparison of sin as scarlet, crimson. You're not able to remove that that stain, that guilt, that, that sin, the mark that sin leaves there. But God says, come. He's talking to Israel. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, pure, clean, and crisp. I love that about God. See, if we would just be willing to sit down and actually talk to God and reason with him, you know what we'd find out? He's right. I'm wrong. That's what I'll find out. And then you know what I do? God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being wrong. You're totally right. And then God honors that, and then he wipes it clean. That's what we're talking about. That's what you did when you got saved. The moment of salvation is exactly what you did. God met you face to face, and you reasoned with him, and you came to the conclusion God was right, you were wrong. You needed him to save you. And every day as a Christian, it's the same thing. When you mess up, when you screw up, don't try to deal with yourself. Are you kidding me? You're the one that got yourself in that mess. Why would you deal with it? No, you can't trust yourself to deal with it. I have made way too many mistakes like that in my life. I need to go to God and I need to reason with him. And then I'll find out, God, you were right all along. I'm wrong. I need you. Please save me from this. That's how you get right with God. It's not complex. It's very easy. The hard part is the humility. The hard part is saying, God, you're 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 right, and I'm I know I'm wrong. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. But you've got to do that. You've got to start doing that in your life if you want to walk with God. So white. It's a great picture. Snow, and so it is a picture of purity. I mean, if you look over in Matthew 17, don't, but Matthew 17, this is where Jesus was transfigured, and it says his countenance was white. His garments were white. In Matthew 28, same thing. When he ascended up into heaven, same thing. You got the angels that were, that were at his side, and they were white, radiant white. And then Revelation 1, we just read that one. His hair was white like wool. It means pure, unblemished, sanctified. It's ready to go. That's the other thing about, uh, I think it's in uh, Matthew a little bit. I forget where it's at, the exact chapter. But it talks about how the fields are white unto harvest. That they're white unto harvest. They're ready to go. It's ready. It's ready. And then next, we've got ruddy. Ruddy. All right, so a lot of people, whenever they hear the term ruddy, I don't know what you think of. What do you think of? Bad? You think of bad? Tough? Alert. Alert, ruddy? Ruddy, 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 ruddy. I think I'm muddy. I don't know why. It's just because it rhymes. <laughs> See, don't be ashamed. Ruddy. What else? Okay, red, yeah. Yeah, like a redhead, yep. Yeah. Like a blush. Okay, so ruddy in its term, we don't typically use that anymore, but ruddy, what it means, if you go back to Webster's 1828, you'll find out it says of a red color, but this is what it means, not necessarily a redhead, but of lively flesh or the color of human skin and high health. So when someone is dead, their skin ain't red. And that is straight medical <laughs> right there. I mean, it's true. It's weird. Like I remember 
I remember, um, I've only been, uh, well, we, we came out to that, but I remember, sorry, Megan, I'm going to mention this, um, when her grandpa passed away. It was, a, it, was a, it was a tough day, but I remember that she and I went up to the hospital after he had already died. And I remember walking into the room after he had passed. You know what color he was? Blue. Blue and white. Yep. Blue and white. Just because the life was gone. And it happened instantly. Yeah. Crazy. Like the redness of the skin just, it's gone. So when you see the countenance of Jesus Christ here being ruddy, white and ruddy, full of life. This is a great picture of his resurrection, the fact that he brings new life to your life, all that stuff, that he is alive. He's alive. I love that. I love that about him. But this is also the description, by the way, and I have it in your guys' cross-references there, but 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Who's that? Anyone know that one? Not Samson. Samsonite. That was way off. (laughs) David. David, his countenance was described as ruddy, very youthful, very lively. I can also describe my children. Um, they're very ruddy. All right, and then the next point here, that he's chiefest among 10,000. Chiefest among 10,000. Go to Philippians 2. Hold your spot and go to Philippians 2. And someone else take Colossians 1.18. Kent, you got that one. Everyone else go to Philippians 2. The chiefest among 10,000. All right, Philippians 2, take a look at this. So verse 6, Who being in the form of God thought it not robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because he did all this and he made himself no reputation and died for our sins, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him And given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what I love about these verses is when it says every knee, every tongue. How many of you know people that are so stubborn against God, even to the point that they may acknowledge him or know him, want nothing to do with him, walk completely contrary to him, or mock him, or even pretend like he doesn't exist. Anybody? I know a few. Their knee will bow. Their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because that's what it says. Imagine that day. Think about that for a second. That is humiliating. These people that don't want to be humiliated at all in order to get saved, and I mean that in a good way, they're not willing to humble themselves in order to receive salvation and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. One day they will bow their knee. One day they will confess. But at that point in time, it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late. Because that's Jesus. He's the chiefest among 10,000. He is the top dog. No one can get beyond him. He's it. You can't get past him. Read Colossians. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That in all things he might have the preeminence, no matter what it is. See, 
don't wait for that day for that to actually exist in your life because out of all the things that can happen in your life, he has the preeminence. Like he's the he's the best. He he should matter the most. His opinion should carry the most weight, the most worth, everything in your life because in all things he should have the preeminence. It's not like you put God first and then my schoolwork or God first and then my family. No, it's God first in everything. Everything. I'm going to love my family because I'm putting God first. I'm going to do good in school because I'm putting God first. I'm going to be a faithful witness to my friends because I'm going to put God first. I'm going to be a hard worker because I'm going to put God first. I'm going to walk with God every day because I'm going to put God first. See, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. It's not compartmentalized and say, God has his portion here and then I can just do the rest. No, it's not how it works. Everything, in all things, he might have the preeminence. He is the chiefest among 10,000. His head, like the most fine gold. Ironically, in Daniel chapter 2, you have the statue. What was at the top? Gold, Gold, but not just gold. Fine Fine gold. So you can have gold, but then there's fine gold. Fine gold has no impurities in it whatsoever. It's the most valuable thing that you could pull out of the earth and refine. And ironically, the Antichrist kingdom, Babylon, has a head of fine gold, just like God does. That's quite interesting. But like fine gold, it's the most valuable substance that can be pulled from the earth. His locks are bushy and black as raven. They're healthy, youthful. They're full of life. You can see that in the other descriptions. I have Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 1. In both of those descriptions, his hair is not described as black. It's described as white, which is interesting. And so the only thing for me to try to reconcile that is, um, you know, in his, if his hair is white, that means he's in his glorified state. And when it's black, it's when he's actually in his human state. That's the only thing I can think of that actually makes sense. But there's nothing that I can prove. So this is my opinion. His eyes as the doves are, are his eyes of the doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk fitly set. All right. Some of this we've already talked about. We've already talked about doves a little bit. But here's something else that you may not have known about doves. Did you know that doves can actually see everything? Did you know that? The way their eyes are positioned in their heads, that each eye sees a perfect 180 degrees. It's weird. So, like, you can't, like, hey, there's a dove. Rah! Like, you're not going to be able to do that. It's just not going to work. He knows you're there. Or she. Sorry. Gender neutral. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Our crazy society. Okay. But doves actually have that ability. So it's interesting that that would be chosen as his eyes because he sees everything. Like you can't spook Jesus. <laughs> you can't hide things from him. He sees everything. Eyes as doves by rivers of waters. What's that in the Bible? The Bible. I want to be like a tree planted by the water. There's a reason why that correlation is in the Bible. No, 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 no. It's, it's fine. You're finishing it in your head. Washed with milk. What's milk in the Bible? The Bible. And it brings nourishment. It brings life, especially to newborns. Fitly set. Fitly set. You know what that's like? The Bible. Because God says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's, it's amazing. how. So his eyes are like that. And they see everything. And they are by rivers of waters, washed with milk, fitly set. Those can be your eyes too. They're peaceful, pure, life-giving, strong, and sure. And he can see in every direction. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. You've already talked about this in the previous chapters. They're beautiful. They give off a good scent. You know, every time the Bible's open, as long as my heart attitude is correct, let me just qualify with that. 
Every time the Bible is open, it is always sweet to me. Always. It always gives off a good aroma. Always. Like even when things are sour in my life, when I spend time with God, he's always sweet to me. Always. Because that's him. That's him. His lips are like lilies dropping with sweet-smelling myrrh. Sweet-smelling myrrh. Let's take a look at a couple of these ones. Go over to uh, Psalm 45. And someone take Isaiah 50, verse 4. Isaiah 50, verse 4. Luke, you got that one. Isaiah 50, verse 4. And everyone go to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, this is a psalm about Jesus. It's one of those uh, prophetic psalms that talks about Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 1, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And then he begins his description of Jesus. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. So it says right there that Jesus Christ, the grace is in his lips. I need grace in my life, big time. Isaiah 50, go ahead and read that one, Luke. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak the word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth my ear to hear and And that's exactly how Christ can be in your life when you walk with him daily. You can have the tongue of the learned. You can know what to say. Sometimes, like when I talk to people, and there's this fear, and we always have it, that, well, I don't know how I'm going to be able to answer them, or I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer their question. Well, right there. Who gives you the tongue of the learned? God does. The standard Sunday school answer. Jesus. He gives you the tongue of the learned. You just need to spend time with him. You just need to spend time with them. I find it interesting that when children learn to speak, guess who they learn to speak from? The people they spend the most time with. They do. They begin to speak like them. They begin to say things, even the way they say things. And that can be good or bad. (laughs) And ironically, when you start spending time with other people at school that might be a bad influence on you, guess what happens? You start to talk like them. The people that you spend time with, you begin to speak like them. So if you want to have the tongue of the learned, speak with someone constantly. Have a good relationship with someone who's learned. Jesus is the best person. Luke chapter 4, I'm just going to read this one. Luke 4 verse 22, it says this. It says, uh, And all bear him witness, and they're talking about Jesus, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So they couldn't believe the things that he was saying. That's someone who I want to be around. I want to be around him. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. Now, when you look up gold rings, so first of all, gold in the Bible is always a picture of deity. It's always a picture of Jesus Christ. And that's why you have the head of the Antichrist statue being like fine gold because he's the great counterfeiter and he wants to be like God. So gold is always a picture of deity. And rings, rings are a symbol of authority. You could read this in Esther with the ring of the king that sealed the proclamations that the king would disperse throughout the kingdom. Um, There's places like that all over the place. But gold rings, so this is something that I thought was really interesting. In the temple... Um, and they have uh, like the curtains and different things that they hung in the temple. They were suspended by rings. So they would create rings that would hold the different uh, temple uh, curtains and hold it all together. But the rings were always silver and they were always brass. They were never gold. Never. 
And so when you study it out and you find out that silver is always a picture of redemption in the Bible, um, and then brass is always a picture of judgment, and we knew that from the study that we did through the tabernacle, um, but gold is always a picture of deity. And so here it talks about how his hands are his gold rings set with the barrel. The other thing that's interesting about this with barrel is that barrel is only found in two places, only found in two places in the scripture. And that is here, I guess three then, here, you have Exodus with the garment of the high priest. That it was one of the gems in the high priest's breastplate. And Lucifer. It's found in Lucifer. It's quite interesting. So I take a look at that and I think, hmm, interesting. Because Jesus, according to Hebrews, is our high priest. The high priest of the Old Testament wore a breastplate that had that gem in it. And Lucifer was also a high priest before Adam even walked this earth. And he had it in his chest and his body as part of the high priest over the creation of God as well. So that's kind of interesting. That's a little just nugget I wanted to throw your way. Um, but his hands are his gold rings set with the barrel. His belly as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. So if you look up these passages, you'll find out that ivory uh, means several different things. One is strength, out of uh, chapter 7, verse 4 of Song of Solomon. Royalty, out of Second Chronicles, Solomon used ivory in the building of the temple and also of his throne and in that area. Uh, luxury, Amos chapter 6. Wealth is Revelation chapter 18. So ivory is always associated with those four things in the scriptures. Sapphires, interestingly, are associated with God in Exodus 24. When they see God, they actually go up to where God's throne is. And sapphire is like underneath the throne of God. It's also in the high priest's breastplate again. It's also existent in heaven, according to Ezekiel 1, 26 and 10, verse 1. And it's also in Lucifer's body, again, in Ezekiel 28. So it's interesting there. So it's always associated with heavenly things, with God himself, and also with the high priest and with Lucifer. So I think that's interesting. Legs as pillars of marble set upon sockets of gold. Now, marble, any of you deal with marble? What do you know about marble? Beautiful countertops. Beautiful. Yes. You put too much weight on it, it cracks. Yep. Heavy. Super heavy. Uh uh, no pores in it. Yep. Yep, very smooth. I mean, it's like heavy. I mean, that's one thing I think of when I think of marble. Have you ever tried to move like a marble countertop? I tried to move a, a marble. This is a countertop that was just for a bathroom. It wasn't that big. I'm like, oh my word. Like, what's that now? It's heavy. It's very, very heavy. Pillars of marble. What's that? I'm sure you're not confusing it with granite. Oh, yeah, I might be. Because granite is, granite is yeah, not you're right. porous. Granite is not porous. Yep. Granite is very solid and is difficult to crack. Marble, on the other hand, is porous. It stains. And I know that because I have a white marble bathroom floor. There you go. There you go. So Rick is the professional when it comes to that. Not there you go. Only by experience. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. You're now a professional by experience. Yeah. You know these things. Yes, exactly. So very, very important. Very important. So it's strength. And I think about deity. I think about how you have the, the sockets of gold. Uh, once again, you have that picture of deity. And that his legs are pillars of marble set upon sockets of gold absolutely strong piece of piece of rock and then the countenance as lebanon and excellent as cedars so we've already talked about lebanon we've already talked about cedars what were they used for the temple they were built in the temple cedar wood what about cedar wood that's important very strong very very strong (laughs) yeah until you get irritated by it cedar yep cedar chips very very strong in fact 
there's only in the in the Bible when it talks about God's voice and trying to explain to you how powerful God's voice is, it talks about how His voice breaketh the cedars. You just can't break a cedar; it just doesn't work that way. But yet, God's voice smashes it into smithereens. So His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. And then His mouth is most sweet. His mouth is most sweet, which that goes back to the Word of God. You can look up Psalm 119, 103, and Proverbs 16, 21, and 24, talking about how sweet words that are like Jesus Christ and what He speaks to you and I, and that's the Word of God. They are the sweetest words we could ever hear. They're the sweetest words that we could ever read. And then the whole point of this is at the tail end of verse 16, that He is altogether lovely. He is my beloved. He is my friend. Okay. There's so many things I could say here, but this is what I'm going to end with because this is what impressed upon my heart. He has to become your beloved, not somebody else's, yours. When he is your beloved, when he is your best friend, when he is yours, that's when you really begin to experience a real relationship with him because there's many of us that can be... I guess, you know, I'm not saying that you're not saved if he doesn't become yours. I'm not saying that at all because you can be saved. Being saved is very, very simple. Very simple. Because you just have to admit that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. Really. That's all you need to do. And call out to him to save you. That's all the Bible says. But it's more than that. Like God just doesn't want to be someone who just, all right, punched your ticket for eternity and now you can get to go to heaven. Like that's not what he desires. He desires to be yours. And he desires you to be his exclusive that no one else that there is a such a tight-knit relationship between you and him that nothing can come in between you two nothing nothing can tear you apart there's nothing that can even come close to the love and the compassion that you have for one another that's what he desires and that is what is lacking in most christians today people say they love god but they don't understand what love even is they only like God because of how, they, how he benefits them and how he, he, he gives them hope for things that are not hopeful or whatever. They don't love him for who he is when he loves us for who we are. And so we have a crazy, crazy screwed up concept of God. We just really do. And we need to look at him properly. He needs to become your beloved. He needs to become your friend. And until that happens, then you're not going to have a very fruitful relationship with God. Your relationship with God will be hit and miss. And, you know, there will be things in your life that you'll use as excuses for, yeah, I'm walking with God because this happened, but you're really, really not. We're very easy, easily deceived by ourselves. We really, really are. So he needs to become your beloved. He needs to become your friend, your beloved and your friend. And that needs to happen. It's got to happen. All right. So that's it. That's the end of chapter five. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. What a great reminder. And I pray that it would encourage all of us to just be more just madly in love with you, that we would want to walk with you and to be with you and to spend time with you, that there would be nothing that could compare to you and that you would be our everything and that we would never let anything come in between you and I and and our relationship together. And I'm sorry for the times in my life where I've allowed that to happen. I've allowed it to happen more than I should have. So God, thank you for your patience towards me personally and towards my family. I pray, God, that you would continue to just convict me and to just drive my heart deeper in love with you and and that your kindness would just be that 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 tether that I would think about that would cause me to draw near to you and because the grace you've shown me is the grace that I don't deserve and so I'm just very thankful this morning I pray that this would affect our lives many of of the students here are in their last week or two of, of school if they're not out already and I pray they take advantage of the time that they have 
uh, with the conversations they have that they already be thinking about camp and about their friends and about the summer and different things that they might be able to do to serve you better um, even when it comes to vacation bible school and all that stuff god i pray that you would be glorified in our midst we pray this in jesus name amen